welcome to this week's Digest Edition of the Herald Scotland, from the 16th to the 22nd of February 2018, read by the volunteers at Cune Review Print Speaking to the Blind at our studios in the Bishopric's Media Centre. Coming up on Side 1. Misery for passengers sees ScotRail find the record amount. This article by Martin Williams. Doctors need training in suicide awareness, say Samaritans, after Scottish deaths rise for the first time in six years. An article by Stephen Naismith. Strikes to begin at Scottish universities in pensions dispute. Article not attributed. Ivor Tiefenbrunn. There will be Brexit winners and losers, but overall the British people will benefit. This article by Ivor Tiefenbrunn. From the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 22nd of February. Business. First-time buyers in Scotland will have to wait 30. This article by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Isla Distillery Ardbeg to invest in massive capacity increase. Arts News. Report calls for more investment in galleries. Assembly plays bingo. Salmon show at Tramway. An article by Phil Miller. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 22nd of February. Arts News. Jenny Savile show at National Galleries of Scotland. Book bug titles unveiled. This article by Phil Miller. The week ahead. Hollywood stars to sashay down the red carpet as Glasgow Film Festival begins. This article by Robert McNeil. This article from the Herald on Monday the 19th of February 2018. News. Misery for passengers sees ScotRail find the record amount. This article by Martin Williams. Rail passengers' misery has been laid bare after ScotRail has received record fines for failing to meet required standards for the running of the nation's trains and stations. The firm has clocked up £3 million in financial penalties over the first nine months of this financial year for its failings, having posted a £3.5 million after-tax loss for 2016. That is double the financial penalties imposed on them for the whole of the previous year. The ScotRail report card shows Abellio, which runs the franchise, failed to reach the required standards and service to the public in 26 benchmarking areas out of 34. It comes as Abellio, an offshoot of Dutch National Railways, came under fresh criticism after failing to meet punctuality targets for the fifth month in a row, with 90.1% of trains arriving on time in the moving annual average. The report card covering the last three months of last year showed that the Dutch operator failed to hit key targets in areas including train and station toilets, litter and cleanliness, ticket machines, train seats and on-train information. The development comes as union chiefs aim for talks with ScotRail management after threatening strike action over the axing of a health and safety department which they say will put passengers and staff at risk. Jackie Bailey, MSP, a former interim Scottish Labour Party leader, has said she aims to hold a meeting with ScotRail Managing Director Alex Hines to raise concerns of station skipping of local rail services and the impact it has on passengers. 
It comes after it emerged that the number of ScotRail trains skipping stops has increased to as many as 20 a day. Last week, ScotRail made an apology after being forced to cut the number of carriages on some Glasgow to Edinburgh trains by half, leading to fears of passenger overcrowding. The latest three-month performance figures show that fines against the Bellio have topped £1 million record, £1.228 million, for the first time in recent years. In its full final year of running the previous ScotRail franchise, first was fined £576,000, 2014-15, under the performance regime. But official data reveals that Abellio's penalties are currently more than five times that, with three months of the financial year to go. Abellio has now racked up nearly £5.75 million in penalties since it took over from first. Transport Minister Humza Yousaf is known to be preparing a public sector bid to take over Scotland's railways with a possible switch in 2022. Liz Warren Corney of the Transport Union TSSA Scotland was concerned about the effect of the failures on passengers and said the Transport Minister Humza Yusuf needs to find his backbone and bring ScotRail back into public ownership now. She said, since Abellio took over, ScotRail has lurched from crisis to crisis. They failed to achieve their franchise obligations and are now on their second improvement plan. We've seen them play fast and loose with passenger safety attacking their own CCTV operations and doing away with their station, health and safety department. And already in 2018, ScotRail has been humiliated after ordering trains to skip stations in order to achieve punctuality targets. No wonder passenger satisfaction levels have plummeted. How much longer will the Bellio be allowed to take Scottish passengers for a ride? ScotRail's problems all stem from the Tories' broken franchising system. Once and for all, we need to stop privateers leeching money from our rail network. The franchise was awarded in 2015 in a 10-year deal worth up to £10 billion and runs until 2025. Ministers, however, are considering a public sector bid. In 2016-17, Abellio received £1.5 million in fines after receiving £1.24 million in financial penalties in the first nine months of operating franchise. Penalties and rewards are handed out by the Scottish Government, Quango Transport Scotland, using the Service Quality Incentive Regime, Squire, to judge operators' performance. Money from the Squire Fund is ploughed back into railways, but unions have claimed the cost-cutting drive could hit standards. The operator got an overall performance score of 89.58% in the last three months of last year, against the required benchmark of 93.12%. Last month, the operator drafted in railway consultant Nick Donovan to carry out an independent review of its performance. With the support of a petition signed by more than 22,000 people, Manuel Cortes, the General Secretary of TSSA, who has previously called on the Minister to take the bold political decision for full nationalisation of ScotRail without recourse to any bidding, preferably by using a a break clause in 2019. Transport Scotland inspectors audit 353 stations and approximately 200 trains every four weeks. Service areas inspected range from toilets and timetables to train cleanliness, graffiti, staff service, ticket officers and the public address system. A Scotsdale spokesman said, We have signed up to the toughest service quality regime in the UK and it is right that we have. It means that the standards are driven even higher and customers get a better service. 
These are not fines. It is a reinvestment fund. Every penny raised through Squire gets put back into Scotland's railway. This article by Martin Williams. Doctors need training in suicide awareness, say Samaritans, after Scottish deaths rise for the first time in six years. An article by Stephen Naismith, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of February 2018. Doctors, council workers and bus and train staff should be given suicide prevention training in a bid to stem the rising tide of those taking their own lives. The authors of a new report, which comes after the first rise in suicides for six years, spoke to family and friends of suicide victims and found there was often little help or understanding available in times of crisis. Among those who should get potentially life-saving training include GPs, A&E staff, prison officers, teachers and job centre staff. The report criticises the awareness of some family doctors. Participants highlighted inconsistent support from GPs, some of whom did not seem to know how to talk to those who had contemplated or attempted suicide, it says. It also claims many GPs are unaware of what other services exist to help people apart from NHS mental health services, which often have long waiting lists, it notes. The report was compiled by Samaritan Scotland, NHS Scotland and the Health and Social Care Alliance Scotland and will be presented to ministers today as the Scottish Government looks to revise its suicide prevention strategy which expired in 2016. The number of people who took their own lives in Scotland rose by 56 to 728 people in 2016, according to the latest statistics, after consecutive years of decline. As well as arguing for better training for workers in public services, members of the public also need more help to have difficult discussions with family members, colleagues or others who may be at risk, the report says. The report says it needs to be more normal and acceptable for Scots to talk about their feelings, adding, at the moment most people are too nervous to ask others whether they have considered suicide as they fear they could plant the idea in their head or accidentally say the wrong thing. Campaigns should focus on breaking down this misconception and giving everyone the confidence to have these tough conversations. The report suggests people be given the right vocabulary to talk about suicide, avoiding phrases that increase stigma like cry for help or successful and unsuccessful suicide attempts. It also warns that academic language used by professionals can be alienating and says restrictions on the availability of mental health services can be a problem. When someone is experiencing suicidal thoughts, they cannot ever imagine feeling any different. So being told by your counsellor that you only have six sessions isn't helpful, the report says. A spokeswoman for Samaritan Scotland said anyone who was worried about a friend, relative or colleague should ask them if they want to talk and use open-ended questions. 
focus on your friend's feelings instead of trying to solve the problem. It can be of more help and shows you care, she said. Respect what they tell you. Sometimes it's easy to want to try and fix a person's problems or give them advice. Let them make their own decisions. She said the report's participants had shared deeply personal experiences of suicide. We are extremely grateful to them. They highlighted a mixed picture in terms of the support they received throughout their experiences and some examples of good practice which can be learnt from. We encourage the Scottish Government to listen to their views, create more opportunities for feedback and take further action to prevent suicides in the future. Shirley Windsor, Organisation Lead for Public Mental Health at NHS Health Scotland, said, Every death by suicide is a tragedy with life-changing impact on families and communities and we must do everything we can to prevent it. The Scottish Government aims to publish a new Suicide Prevention Action Plan this summer, following on from the previous Suicide Prevention Strategy 2013-2016. Samaritan's Executive Director for Scotland, James Jopling, said, We need a renewed commitment and bold action for deaths by suicide in Scotland to further decline. We must be ambitious. Suicide is preventable and 728 deaths is simply too much heartbreak for too many people in our communities across Scotland. With this action plan, it is more important than ever that we see Scotland return to being a world leader on suicide prevention. A spokesman for the British Medical Association said all doctors receive training on how to assess the risk of suicide and how to intervene as part of their initial training. Although the nature and length to this varies from one medical school to another. Subsequent training depends on what specialism they choose and further GP training is undertaken by individual GPs according to their needs and those of patients. Chair of BMA Scotland's GP committee, Dr Alan McDevitt, said, Sadly, it is not uncommon for GPs to see patients who are at risk of committing suicide and knowing how to assess potential suicide risks and provide support is a vital part of a GP's skill set. Emergency psychiatric help is made available to patients that GPs believe are at urgent risk, but there is a clear need for greater investment and recruitment in mental health services to provide long-term support once immediate crisis points are passed. Mental Health Minister Maureen Watt said... Prevention of suicide is a priority for the Scottish Government and every suicide is a tragedy with a far-reaching impact on family, friends and the community long after a person has died. I look forward to receiving this report from the Samaritans and their partners and learning more from the people directly affected by suicide. Work like this is invaluable for informing and shaping our draft suicide prevention action plan. This will be available for public comment in March and we will be conducting a series of public events around Scotland to get people's feedback on our plans to further reduce suicides in Scotland. The Herald Scotland, Thursday 22nd of February 2018. 
strikes to begin at Scottish universities in pensions dispute. Article not attributed. A wave of strike action in a bitter row over pensions is getting underway at universities across Scotland. Members of the University and College Union, UCU, are planning 14 days of action this month and in March, building towards a week-long walkout by staff. The action, described as very disappointing by university bosses, is beginning on Thursday, with union members effectively embarking on a five-day walkout covering Thursday and Friday of this week and Monday to Wednesday of the following week. The UCU said... Ten institutions will ultimately be affected by the strikes, affecting more than 145,000 students in total. Universities UK says it remains at the negotiating table and believes that around 16% of academic staff that are UCU members in the affected UK institutions voted in favour of strike action. The dispute centres on proposals put forward by Universities UK for changes to the university's superannuation scheme, USS. Employers argue that the pension scheme is billions of pounds in deficit, while the union says the proposals would leave a typical lecturer almost £10,000 a year worse off in retirement. A recent ballot saw more than four-fifths of UCU members back strike action in a 63% turnout in Scotland. The universities are among 64 UK institutions to be hit with 14 days of strikes over the next four weeks if the dispute is not resolved, the UCU has warned. It is due to stage rallies in Glasgow and Dundee on Thursday. Further strike action is also planned for Monday, March 5th through to Thursday, March 8th, followed by a five-day walkout commencing on Monday, March 12th and ending on Friday, March 16th. The universities in Scotland that will be affected are the University of Aberdeen, the University of Dundee, the University of Edinburgh, the University of Glasgow, Heriot-Watt University in Edinburgh, Open University in Scotland, St Andrews University, the University of Stirling, the University of Strathclyde and the Scottish Association for Marine Science at the University of the Highlands and Islands. Due to academic timetabling, union members at the Universities of Edinburgh and Stirling are not taking part in the action this week, but they will participate in all the other strike dates and are also set to walk out on Monday 19th and Tuesday 20th March. UCU Scotland official Mary Senior said nobody wants to take strike action, but staff across Scotland feel that they have no choice. These hardline proposals would slash staff pensions and are simply uncalled for. It is staggering that the universities have refused to engage with the union and a real insult to staff and to students. The action has the support of Amar Anwar, the rector of the University of Glasgow, who said, I would urge every student to show their support for their lecturers. It would not only boost their morale, but be a real show of solidarity. Universities UK said the pension scheme had a deficit of more than £6 billion that cannot be ignored. A spokesman for the Universities UK has met UCU over 35 times in the last year to discuss reforms. He said UUK remains at the negotiating table, but so far UCU has refused to engage on how best to address the funding challenges facing USS. It is important now that UCU engages on how best to ensure the long-term sustainability of the scheme. He added that there are scheduled discussions with UCU on key issues with the USS. 
The spokesman continued, the changes proposed will make USS secure and sustainable, safeguarding the future of universities. University staff will still have a valuable pension scheme, with employer contributions of 18% of salary, double the private sector average. This makes strike action very disappointing. A spokesman for University Scotland said University Scotland is not a party in this dispute, but recognises the need for universities to address the funding challenges facing USS. Universities' immediate priority will be to try to minimise disruption to students' education and to vital student services during that time. This article from the Herald on Monday the 19th of February 2018. Business. Ivor Tiefenbrunn, there will be Brexit winners and losers, but overall the British people will benefit. This article by Ivor Tiefenbrunn. Symmetry is a sign of health and beauty, so we search for it everywhere. We naturally think that our opinion is as valid as anyone else's and mistakenly assume that both sides of an argument have equal weight in media coverage. But that isn't necessarily the case, especially when, as often with a contentious issue, a large imbalance in reporting occurs. I recently participated on on a panel on Brexit at the Scottish Parliament. As usual in the EU debate, there were four Remainers against one Brexiteer, and the chairman was a Remainer. The three professors and the journalist on the panel with me all said that Brexit would be ruinous and sought grounds to overturn the Leave decision, leaving me the sole voice in favour. Why are the referendum losers who disparage the vote always so heavily overrepresented, when for most people Brexit will have no greater negative impact than many other ongoing political and economic challenges to which they are already accustomed? Tony Blair's recent well-published incitement to overturn the Brexit vote reminded me of Y2K hysteria. We were told that a change of date would mean that computers would crash, the economy would collapse, we would lose our jobs, planes would fall out of the sky, shops would run out of food and the supply of water, electricity and gas would be stopped. We were enjoined to audit our computer systems and supply chains and to make extensive but completely ill-defined precautionary preparations. The predicted doomsday eventually arrived and passed without incident, but Blair's millennium bug scaremongering wasted a vast amount of money and effort, and the educated alternative optimistic perspective was ignored. Remainers only want Brexit if it doesn't change anything, and want to continue to submit to the protectionist trade terms of the EU, with its iniquitous regulations and bureaucracy. Even though remaining now guarantees the inevitable end of our rebate, joining the euro, submission to an EU state, accepting an EU army, and destroying any last vestige of the UK's independence. EU doom-mongers also believe that we should pay the EU to continue unequal trade in physical goods, remain subject to EU governance, and yet still have our financial sector deprived of passporting rights. Given that prosperity depends upon defending the realm, maintaining an independent judiciary and having small government, staying in the dictatorial EU runs counter to everything that Britons traditionally hold dear and guarantees economic ruin. The Brexit vote was for change, not for things to stay as they are. 
There will be winners and losers, but overall the British people will benefit. They understand this and most accept that the EU will do us no favours and that we are better to leave without delay and without a punitive deal when we are the EU's biggest export market and run a massive trade deficit. Yet despite this being the majority opinion, their voices expressing optimism about our future outside the oppressive EU are not being heard. Outside the protectionist, corruption-tainted EU with its obscene common agricultural policy that dumps surplus produce in Africa to ruin their farmers, we will have access to more competitive suppliers and the cost of food, clothing, shoes and so on will fall. Lower import costs will reduce our balance of payment deficit and inflation, allow us to use our resources more productively, increase our disposable per capita income and reduce our long-term real interest rates. All this will increase our capacity to invest and make our nation healthier and more competitive. While jobs may well be lost in many activities, that will allow us to create new jobs and invest more productively in growth opportunities. All this has to happen anyway to maintain our competitiveness, and despite any EU obstruction, British agriculture, industry and our financial sector will be better able to adapt and thrive outside. Importers complain loudly about the impact of Brexit, as do multinational corporations, academics, civil servants and others who fear that they stand to lose and all plead their special case like the unelected officials in Brussels who threaten us with disaster and dire retribution. Amidst this clamour, it is easy to forget that the vast majority of British people are either unaffected or see many advantages in leaving the EU and are not trying to make their voices heard. They accept that we are leaving, so they are not busy spreading scare stories or panic-mongering like those who favour remaining. It is entirely up to the bully boys leading the EU to determine how they wish to treat us, and only they can decide how much they value us as an ally and trading partner, whatever we wish, and we will cope with whatever they decide. Everything we value in our modern world has been created by free enterprise and genuine free trade. The advantages of leaving the closed and failing EU market, ideally without any restrictive agreement, means that we should disregard the hysterical clamour in the media of those who wish us to remain, or do a costly deal, or delay or nullify our exit. The lack of symmetry in this debate should be clear to anyone with an open mind, or who understands the big picture, and illustrates, perhaps counterintuitively, that those arguing the loudest are a minority with the weakest case. As your ma used to tell you, empty vessels make the most noise. Ivor Tiefenbrunn is a Scottish manufacturer. This article by Ivor Tiefenbrunn. Remember, you no longer need to receive a weekly digest service on tape, but can in fact listen to more daily content online via www.qandreview.com slash free podcasts, accessible on your computer or mobile device. From the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 22nd of February. Business. First-time buyers in Scotland will have to wait 30. This article by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Young Scots will have to wait until they're nearly 30 and earning more than £10,000 over the average wage to get their foot on the property ladder, according to research. Figures show that while average Scottish salaries have stayed static at around £23,000 a year, in the past 10 years, the typical first-time buyer's earnings have risen from 
£1,685 to £33,873 over the same period. Concerns about the plight of first-time buyers have also resurfaced as the data shows the average percentage loan advance the banks are giving has been cut from 89.25% in 2007 to just 84.5%. The number of loans has remained the same, with 35,400 in 2007, and the same last year, although the value of mortgages has risen from 3.19 billion to 3.95 billion. New Homes for Scotland, the umbrella body for builders, has called on the Scottish Government to extend the Help to Buy scheme and increase the levels of first-time buyers. Nicola Sturgeon launched Help to Buy in 2013 in a bid to help people who were hampered by the lack of affordable mortgages and unable to pay the large deposits demanded by banks. The initiative, which provides tens of thousands of pounds to help people get onto the property ladder, is set to expire at the end of March 2019 and no further plans have yet been announced. But Karen Campbell of Homes for Scotland said that first-time buyers are the lifeblood of the housing market and warned that that many still face a huge challenge to save for a deposit. She added, and this is where the new build sector can provide vital help since those eligible for the Scottish Government's hugely successful help-to-buy scheme could purchase a new home up to £200,000 with just a 5% deposit. With the majority of Scots aspiring to own their own home and increasing housing supply the single most effective way to address affordability concerns, we hope the Scottish Government will listen to our call to extend the Help to Buy scheme beyond 2018-19. Not only will this allow more people to benefit from this support, relieving pressure on other sectors, it will provide builders with the confidence and certainty they need to invest in delivering more of the homes our country needs. Graham Brown, Director of Shelter Scotland, added, These statistics once again show Scotland's broken broken housing scheme where young people struggle to get a home. At the heart of the problem is demand for homes outstripping supply. To tackle the problem, we need a huge injection of new properties of all tenures, but especially homes for social rent to reduce inflationary pressures and make a fairer housing system for all. Well-off families are using a government scheme that provides tens of thousands of pounds to help people get on the property ladder. The Scottish Government has helped out thousands of buyers since it introduced its help-to-buy scheme, but figures produced last year showed that more than one in three of those were from households where earnings were more than £50,000. Dozens of families with six-figure earnings also benefited from state aid for their new home. Article from Herald Scotland, 20th of February, 2018. Business. Isla Distillery Ardbeg to invest in massive capacity increase by Kevin Scott, business correspondent. Scotch whisky producer the Glenmorangie Company has unveiled a multi-million pound investment in its Ardbeg distillery on Isla. The undisclosed investment will see a new still house built at the distillery, doubling the number of copper stills to four. 
The move comes just weeks after a similar upgrade was announced at the Glenmorangie distillery. The still house on Ardbeg will significantly increase capacity at this distillery, enabling Ardbeg to produce between 1.4 million and 2.4 million litres of alcohol each year. Glenmorangie said the larger stillhouse will ensure a steady supply of whisky to meet rising demand from the ever-increasing numbers of Ardbeg fans. Glenmorangie, which acquired the mothballed distillery in 1997, said that subject to planning approval from Argyll and Butte Council, work will begin this year and will be completed in 2019. Designed to regenerate a site at the heart of the distillery, this traditional-style building will house a total of four copper stills. Under the new plans, the new still house would be built on a site once occupied by maturation warehouses. The plans would see the distillery work with two wash stills and two spirit stills, while the space currently housing the stills will be repurposed to accommodate further washbacks. Planning permission for a new boiler house has already been granted and work is underway on site. Glenmorangie said the expansion would lead to jobs being created on Isla, but couldn't yet specify how many. The investment comes as Scotch whisky has just enjoyed a record year for exports, with sales of £4.3 billion, up £356 million on 2016. This included a 14.2% increase in sales of single malts to £1.17 billion. Mark Herlinger, chief executive of the Glenmorangie Company, said, We are delighted by Ardbeg's success since 1997 and by the growing passion for our whisky from fans around the world. Just two weeks ago, the Glenmorangie Distillery in Speyside announced multi-million pound plans for a new stillhouse, which the company also aims to get underway this year. The upgrades would hugely increase the volume of whisky supplied to international markets from roughly a decade hence, based on the 10-year-old expressions of the standard variants of Glenmorangie and Ardbeg. Owned by the French giant Moet Hennessy Louis Vuitton, MHLV, the Glenmorangie company turned over £84.3 million in 2016, the last financial period for which accounts are available. Pre-tax profits that year were £19.8 million, helped in part by the launch of the first 21-year-old Ardbeg expression for 15 years. Established in 1815, Ardbeg is widely known for being the smokiest of the Isla malts, Production ceased at the distillery in 1981 before small-scale distillation took place under new ownership between 1987 and 1991. It was only in 1997 when the Glenmorangie Company acquired the distillery from Allied de Mec that full-time production returned. Since its renaissance, Ardbeg has enjoyed year-on-year growth, helped by the Ardbeg Committee, a 120,000-strong members group for fans of the whisky. Ardbeg made global headlines in 2011 when it sent samples into space. The experiment saw vials of the spirit sent to the International Space Station to investigate how zero gravity affected the maturation process. In spite of the rise in capacity, Ardbeg said it would remain one of the smallest distilleries on Isla and the malt would be made using the methods in place more than 200 years. Distilling on Isla has been reinvigorated in recent years, with new distilleries such as Kilchoman and Ardna Ho, which is being built by Hunter Lang. Whiskey giant Diageo has also unveiled plans to return production to the Port Ellen distillery. Arts News. Report calls for more investment in galleries. 
Assembly Plays Bingo, Salmon Show at Tramway. An article by Phil Miller, published in the Herald Scotland of Tuesday the 20th of February 2018. Why Collect? A report on museum collecting by historian Sir David Canadine, commissioned by Art Fund and the Wolfson Foundation, calls for increased investment in museums and their collections. The report highlights the ever-widening gap between the spiralling prices of works on the international art market and the limited acquisition funds available to museums and galleries in the UK. Canadine's analysis of museum and gallery collecting traces its history from the 1830s to the present day and is accompanied by 11 case studies which explore various facets of the social and cultural impact of collecting. Canadine cites the £330 million recently paid for Leonardo da Vinci's Salvator Mundi. It says the museums of the UK have experienced a decade of diminished funding as an example of the cost of art. The morale, confidence and the numbers of curatorial staff, it says, have been in serious decline for some time. www.artfund.org the Assembly Festival is working with Scottish theatre companies Grid Iron and Stellar Quines on the production of their new show, Bingo, which premieres at Assembly Hall on the Mound, Edinburgh, on the 6th of March. This marks the first time Assembly has programmed shows at the venue outside the festival season in August. William Burdett Coots, the director of Assembly Festival, said... Assembly is committed to investing in Scottish theatre year-round. Since 2016 and the launch of the ART, Assembly Roxy Theatre Prize, we have been working more and more with Scottish theatre companies out with the festival. This year, with the extended use of Assembly Hall, we are delighted that we will be able to present much larger-scale theatre and new work to Edinburgh audiences. Bingo is directed by Stellar Quine's artistic director Jemima Levick and runs from 6 to 17th of March. www.assemblyfestival.com The tramway in Glasgow and Lux, Scotland are to present a series of works by the American-born, Glasgow-based artist and filmmaker Margaret Salmon. This will be the largest presentation of her work to date and her first solo exhibition in Scotland since 2006. Margaret Salmon works on 16mm and 35mm film. A special performance and screening event of Salmon's latest film, Millimetre 2017, will take place on the 24th of February with live music from the Scottish post-punk band Sacred Paws, who created the soundtrack for the film. Millimetre was commissioned for Berwick Film and Media Arts Festival 2017. This article from the Glasgow Herald, Thursday the 22nd of February. 
Arts News. Jenny Savile show at National Galleries of Scotland. Book bog titles unveiled. This article by Phil Miller. An exhibition of works by the renowned British artist Jenny Savile is to open at the Scottish National Gallery of Modern Art, the SNGMA, in Edinburgh this spring. Savile, who attended Glasgow School of Art, is known for her large depictions of the female form. Her 21-foot-long strategy south-face, front-face, north-face reached a wide audience when it appeared on the cover of the 1994 album The Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers. The show will feature 17 works from private and public collections across the world. This will be the first museum exhibition of Savile's work to be held in Scotland and only her third in the UK. The selection will span 26 years from early paintings such as Propped in 1992 and Trace in 1993-94 to recent charcoal and pastel drawings. Other highlights will include a series of large-scale head paintings such as Rosetta II, 2005-2006, made while the artist was based in Italy, and the premiere of a major new work, Aleppo, 2017-18, that will be hung at the Scottish National Gallery alongside historic works from the collection. The Scottish Book Trust has announced the books chosen for the 2018-19 Book Bug Bags, that are distributed free to every baby, toddler and three-year-old in Scotland. Every year, BookBug gives more than 800,000 books to families across Scotland. The baby bag books are Peekaboo in the Jungle by Cockeretto, Child's Play, Baby's First Black and White Book, Faces by Stella Bagot, Osborne, and If You're Happy and You Know It by Annie Kubler, Child's Play. The toddler bag includes How to Bath, Your Little Dinosaur by Jane Clark and Georgie Brickett, Penguin Random House, Maisie's Bus by Lucy Cousins, Walker Books and Flip and Find Farmers by Samantha Meredith, Campbell Macmillan. The books for older children are You Choose by Pippa Goodart and Nick Sharat, Penguin Random House, Penguin by Dolly Dunbar, Walker Books and Is That an Elephant in My Fridge? by Caroline Crewe and Claudia Renussi, Scholastic. This article from the Herald on Monday the 19th of February 2018. Arts. The week ahead. Hollywood stars to sashay down the red carpet as Glasgow Film Festival begins. This article by Robert McNeil. First, the figures. No fewer than 330 events showcasing more than 180 movies from 51 countries, including 6 world, 7 European, 77 UK and 52 Scottish premieres in this, its 14th year. All of which makes Glasgow Film Festival one of the largest celebrations of its kind in the UK. The sheer range of genres, cultures and styles is extraordinary and the hackneyed expression something for everyone is truly applicable here. Where to start? Well, let's be radical and check out the beginning. On Wednesday, with the UK premiere of Wes Anderson's animated canine adventure Isle of Dogs. It's set in a future dystopian Japan and features the voices of Brian Cranston, Scarlett Johansson, Edward Norton, Tilda Swinton, Jeff Goldblum and Bill Murray. 
Fast forward and we find that the end of the festival on March the 4th is the world premiere of Ne Passeran, a film to make Scots proud, featuring the selfless solidarity of workers at the Rolls-Royce factory in East Kilbride, who in 1974 refused to repair engines that had been used during the military coup in Chile the previous year, thereby grounding half of the dictatorship's air force. Hard to imagine something like that happening now. All the same, Philip Busto Sierra's feature film shines a laudatory light on times when ordinary men defied the might of the market and a military junta. The film festival also features extraordinary people, superstars of the screen, as to say, though we still think of the likes of Karen Gillan, David Tennant and James McAvoy as Urain, the boys and girl next door who made it big. Gillan will donder or perchance sashay down the red carpet for the world premiere on Saturday of her directorial debut, The Party's Just Beginning, which was filmed in her native Inverness. Meanwhile, Tennant, a fellow Doctor Who graduate, stars in a new rom-com with a twist, You, Me and Him, and McAvoy, the professor in Yon X-Men, can be seen in Vim Vendor's thrilling romance, Submergence. I'm so parochial that I've barely left time to mention Hollywood legend Bill Pullman appearing for the UK premiere of The Ballad of Lefty Brown, while on screen you can also catch Liam Neeson in Mark Felt, the man who brought down the White House, Harvey Keitel in Madame, and Joaquin Phoenix in You Were Never Really Here by Glasgow's own Lynn Ramsey. I also wanted to highlight the pop-up movie houses and GFFFF Fright Fest, Too many events to figure here, I'm afraid. The website glasgowfilm.org forward slash festival has full details of the festival, which runs from Wednesday until March the 9th at various venues. Tickets are also available on 0141 332 6535. This article by Robert McNeil. End of side one. Please fast forward to the end of the tape and turn over for side two.